Good afternoon and welcome to Your DIY Health here on the People's Patriot Network. I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge. It is Thursday, January 7th, 2021. And this program is meant to present nutritional information only and is in no way meant to replace the advice of a competent medical professional, assuming you can find one. I'm not a doctor, and that's a good thing. In my opinion, the doctors most people go to see when they have a health issue, MDs, are wrapped around the axle of their training. Unfortunately, their training is in drugs and surgery, and it doesn't equip them to treat the over 900 chronic health issues that are proven to be a result of a nutritional deficiency. I'm simply someone who's been studying under the tutelage of one of, if not the top nutritional authorities in the world, Dr. Joel Wallach. Now, I don't treat diseases, and I don't even treat people. I simply advise people how to give their bodies the raw materials they need to support and maintain good health. And when the body has what it needs, it'll fix itself. The body wants to fix itself. The body knows how to fix itself. It has a God-given innate ability to do so. The only thing it's missing is the raw materials. When you put those back into the mix, stand back and wait to be amazed, because your body's going to do some really cool stuff. Now, you can visit my website at yourdiyhealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R, D-I-Y, like do-it-yourself, health, H-E-A-L-T-H, yourdiyhealth.com. There's all kinds of information there. All the products we talk about are there, and we encourage you to check them out. If you have any questions about anything, hit the Contact Me button. You can send an email or call and leave a message, and we'll get back with you as quick as we can, usually within a few hours, and we'll do everything we can to get you on the right track and get your questions answered. But uh, check things out, and... uh, Take advantage of it. The um, information there is all free. The only thing you pay for is the products, and the sales all support the show. And more importantly, they support your health, and that's the most important thing of all. So check that stuff out. If you have any, like I said, uh, check out the radio shows tab, and at the top of the page you'll see the link to our archive page set up through castbox.fm. And... uh, if you scroll down a little bit further, you'll see the link to information about the shows we do, how you listen, all that kind of thing. And then at the bottom of the page, you'll see the link to our Facebook page set up for the show, as well as the chat room. Take advantage of all of it there. Like I said, it's all free except for the products. And we encourage you to share the shows by email or social media. Take advantage of it. Let other people know about the shows so they can learn how to restore their health naturally as well. Now, keep in mind that the topics discussed and opinions mentioned on the show are those of the host and or guests and don't necessarily represent the opinions of the People's Patriot Network, its owners or sponsors, or any of the alphabet agencies out there listening in. Nothing we say in the show should be construed as an attempt to diagnose, treat, or cure any kind of a health issue. It's all here for your education and entertainment purposes only, so that as a responsible adult, you can use this show as a jumping off point to do your, do your own research and due diligence, so that you can make sure that what you're doing and what you're trying is right for you. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, dun, 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 dun. Well, oh yeah, the number to call into the show is 614-426-8787. 614-426-8787. 614-426-8787. And um, if you uh, are on Skype, you can send a contact request to Sarge45ACP. That's S-A-R-G-E. The number is 45 and the letters A-C-P is in Paul. And mention you're a listener. We'll get you approved. And from that point on, you'll be able to... Uh, uh, call into the show anytime it's on live in excellent audio quality via Skype. 
Now, being that it is Thursday, our normal Thursday guest is Mike Gaddy, historian and scholar, uh, his, uh, constitutional scholar. And we'll see if we can get him online here. And uh, no doubt we'll be talking about the stuff from yesterday. Hi, Jim. Hey, Mike. Greetings and hallucinations. How are we doing? I'm having lots of those hallucinations. <laughs> I'm having nightmares after what I saw yesterday. <laughs> But uh, I still have hope. <laughs> uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's not over till the 21st. So well, what say I, you? Two things come to mind with that hope word. And number one was what I was taught for years. Hope is not a method, nor is it a force multiplier. <laughs> and I also was remember the words of Patrick Henry. We shall listen to the siren song of hope until it turns us all into beasts. <laughs> yeah. And that may happen after the 21st as well. You never know. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Some crazy stuff going on. Um, just for the fun of it, I, uh, you know, I've been, I spent yesterday, uh, other than a couple hours that I was in church last night, uh, looking all, all over the internet, finding all kinds of stuff, showing that, yeah, definitely this was a false flag operation with the uh, complete and total cooperation of the Capitol Hill Police Department, um, the Democratic Party, and most of the Republican Party, and uh, BLM and eight and black uh, and Antifa activists were there dressed up as uh, uh, Trump supporters and are the ones that caused all the problems, breaking into the Capitol building and all that kind of thing, which was a you know the last ditch effort of the Soros crew to try and uh, make Trump look absolutely crazy and uh, his supporters the same way so that they could finish their coup uh, and get things, get the swamp back to business as normal. Um, how's your research into this coming? Is it looking similar? Well, it was definitely a psyop. And uh, I uh, have a good friend of mine in Australia and he and I uh, were talking about it on Skype the other night. He's a, uh, former uh, federal police in Australia, and he is just full of all kind of information. And he told me about a week ago that the 6th would be a huge psychological operation, false flag event. Well, got to uh, plug into his crystal ball. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I um, finally got a chance. You know, I got up this morning, and first thing I did was turned on Fox news, which <laughs> was a big mistake. Um, and of course they're all sitting there wringing their hands, talking about how this whole thing was so terrible and we need to have a smooth transition of power and all this kind of garbage. And, um, I was trying to find anything that I could that actually indicated exactly what happened after I went to bed and it took a while, but, um, the I finally found the actual because you know Trump has been blocked on Twitter, <laughs> and I found the actual wording of his text, and it says even though I totally disagree with the outcome of the election and the facts bear me out, nevertheless there will be an orderly transition on January twentieth. I have always said we would continue our fight to ensure that only legal votes were counted. While this represents the end of the greatest first term in presidential history, it's only the beginning of our fight to make America great again. That tells me that he, number one, he hasn't conceded. 
Number two, he was trying to utilize all the uh, civil and uh, administrative procedures, so to speak, uh, before he went to the nuclear option, I guess is the best way of putting it. And, um, you know, he didn't say that uh, it was going to transition to Biden. He didn't congratulate Biden. Um, you know, he's this definitely the end of the first best the first term in history because January 20th, he'll transition to the second term. And uh, that's basically a cryptic way in my book of putting it that, you know, he ain't done. The other thing that's interesting is um, if you notice yesterday, I saw the video where he basically asked everybody and said, you know, we need to be a, a nation of laws and every everyone needs to go home in peace. And 10 U.S.C. Section 254, called the Proclamation to Disperse, says whenever a president considers it necessary to use the militia or armed forces under this chapter, he shall, by proclamation, immediately order the insurgents to disperse and retire peaceably to their abodes within a limited time. And I think he was basically complying with that section of law, saying that, hey, we're going to be using the military here shortly. I'm ordering you to go home in peace. And um, he immediately after that hopped on Air Force One and flew to, I can't remember the name of the base, but it's in Texas, and uh, is there now where he basically is a control center where he's watching the rest of it go on so that he could determine who truly all of the traitors were. And they had to wait until Congress finished their illegal vote in order to do so. And basically, uh, now he has a complete list that was published in the Gateway Pundit uh, of pretty much, you know, they knew all the Democrats were traitors, but now they have a list of all the Republicans. And it's a, it's easier to say who, what Republicans weren't traitors. Very short list. Um, I'm trying to remember where it's at here. But um, Jim Jordan of Ohio, thank goodness, is one of them. Um, and uh, there's only a handful of others. And uh, But basically, virtually all the Senate, with the exception, you know, he, in the way they put it, was Cruz, Hawley, Hyde Smith, Loomis, Marshall, Kennedy, and Tuberville. Uh, pretty much all the rest of them scumbags. So it would appear that he was, you know, basically riding things out, trying to get to the point where... Uh, they tried to do it peacefully, and when that obviously wasn't going to work, they had their little um, false flag yesterday, their PSYOP, and then they went right back. They didn't learn a thing and decided to go right back instead of, you know, listening to the states that I think it was four out of the four or five out of the six swing states are on record now as wanting to change their uh, votes. So there's still a possibility that they could redo things. Um, if the states send a new slate to uh, Congress, they might say, we need to reopen this and redo it, but they probably won't because the whole goal is to get rid of Trump and get Biden in. But um, that's something they could do, I think, um, because normally it can take up to five days for this process, and they just rushed it through last night after their little um, fiasco at the Capitol. But now we're in a situation where uh, they've done their, their deed, they've uh, outed themselves, and now Trump has the information he needs to start making arrests and take over, you know, take back control. Um, do you think, you know, the, the big question at this point is, will he actually do it? Uh, but the, 
they're in that position where within the next couple of days that could possibly happen. What do you think? Well, first off, Jim, let me say that uh, I don't have a great deal of confidence that uh, this is going to work out as uh, people would like for it to do. I still see uh, a PSYOP in operation, and I, again, uh, very respectfully uh, believe that Donald Trump's a part of that PSYOP, and I am quite upset that he made the statement that his first uh, administration was the greatest in history because that is a that oh it just uh, made my blood run cold because uh let me if i may very quickly to you and the audience read you the description of what i consider to be the very best first administration in the history of this country and that in that he says uh and then I'll let you figure out who said this uh, and anyone else who would like to jump in there. He says, in the transition of your foreign affairs, we have endeavored to cultivate the friendship of all nations and especially of those with which we have the most important relations. We have done them justice on all occasions, favored where favor was lawful and cherished mutual interest and intercourse on fair and equal terms. We are firmly convinced and we act on that conviction that with nations as with individuals, our interests soundly calculated will ever be found inseparable from our moral duties. And history bears witness to the fact that a just nation is taken on its word when recourses had to armaments and wars to bridle others. Then this paragraph is what I think is the most critical and is the best administration ever. And he said, at home, fellow citizens, you best know whether we have done well or ill. The suppression of unnecessary bureaucratic offices, of useless establishments and expenses, enabled us to discontinue our internal taxes. These covering our land with officers and opening our doors to their intrusions had already begun that process of domiciliary vexation, which, once entered, is scarcely to be restrained from reaching successively every article of produce and property. If among these taxes, some minor ones fell, which had not been inconvenient, it was because their amount would not have paid the officers who collected them. And because if they had any merit, the state authorities might adopt them instead of others left approved. The remaining revenue on the consumption of foreign articles is paid cheerfully by those who can afford to add foreign luxuries to domestic comforts being collected on our seaboards and frontiers only and incorporated with the transactions of our mercantile citizens. It may be the pleasure and pride of an American to ask what farmer, what mechanic, what laborer ever sees a tax gatherer of the United States. Ooh. And who was it that wrote? Was that John Adams? Nope. That was Thomas Jefferson. Okay. All internal taxes he did away with the bureaucratic offices. He reduced the debt by half in his first time. And he did away with all internal taxes on the people and all taxes were paid. He had good relations with all governments except for the uh, wonderful Muslims in Africa. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, for anyone to say that their administration was better than that, 
and he reduced the debt by half. And for someone who didn't, who increased the debt as much as has been done in the past four years, and we still have taxes, uh, you know, Jim, I just can't buy the fact he has the greatest administration. To be that arrogant troubles me. How about if we amend it to the greatest administration in recent history? <laughs> Did you go well, along with that? <laughs> well, well, but that's not what he said. Yeah, uh, that that would that would be us making that. Uh, yeah, for and someone again, to I make think that statement just it troubles me. Yeah, and basically, I think that's a, a big part of what we all, you know, many of us suffer from, <laughs> present company excluded, <laughs> is uh, you know not learning history properly. You know, what you just uh, quoted was the first I had ever heard that. I knew Thomas Jefferson was uh, uh, decent in most regards, but uh, I have very little knowledge of his actual presidency. And, uh, you know, to, to put another twist on it, he became president because he was, when he was vice president, he's the one that basically uh, dealt with the electoral college votes in a manner that made her president. Isn't that right? No, that has been a stretch part of uh, history. I saw that yesterday. That also angered me. Okay. Uh, I thought you mentioned it at one point. In the election process, uh, Jefferson was not uh, involved in his own election at all. At all, He uh, very correctly stepped aside in any okay. capacity that would have anything to do with his own election. I would have thought that would have been the right thing to do. I had heard somewhere, I thought at one point in the last couple of weeks, I thought you had mentioned something about that. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, no, I, I've seen that several times that he actually uh, authorized his own election and nothing is further from the truth to my knowledge. Okay, cool. Well, I stand because corrected. If, you, if you will remember, the uh, vote went to the House of Representatives and they voted 36 times before they broke a tie. Woo. Wow, that's a trip. And ultimately, he was declared the selected the president. Right, and Obviously. it was the battle was between he and Aaron Burr. Adams didn't even get enough votes to be considered in the final two. Hmm. That's interesting. Wow. And then I Adams became very upset with the uh, the fact that he had been defeated, and he is the only president in history not to attend the inauguration of his successor. Hmm. He loaded up the federal judiciary with a bunch of federal judges who were all federalists. He appointed a uh, chief justice to the Supreme Court, which is probably uh, one of the greatest mistakes in history, and that was John Marshall. And he appointed him uh, and put these federal judges in to try to hamper Jefferson at every turn. And he loaded up and took his carriage and headed back to Boston the day before, or actually the morning of Jefferson's inauguration. Hmm. Interesting. Sour grapes. <laughs> Man. Yeah, it, uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things that is so great is that he and Jefferson patched up in later years, uh, although they didn't meet face-to-face. They exchanged letters for the better part of eight to ten years. And then both of them died on the same day, July the 4th, 1826, exactly 50 right. years from the date they worked together to come up with the Declaration of Independence. And I think, isn't it, is it true, uh, Adam's last words were Jefferson lives? 
Yeah, and Jefferson died that morning. And right, uh, he didn't know it as I already died. Afternoon, Adams didn't know he was dead. Yeah. Strange how things go, man. Yeah, some some of their letters, uh, Jim. I read them all. Uh, There's a the letters between those two over the years, and it was kind of funny how it ended up being uh, how they ended up actually uh, reconciliating was the fact that Abigail Adams wrote to Jefferson uh, in giving her condolences on the death of Jefferson's daughter. Uh-huh. And Jefferson responded back in, uh, you know, in a very cordial manner. And Abigail uh, very curtly sent back and said, look, I sent you our condolences. I'm not trying to make up. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. <laughs> that's a trip yeah some of these things are are you know these parts of history jim this is what makes history so wonderful it's uh you know I've, I've said many times when i was in high school i hated history because it was what happened in 1620 what happened in 1776 right. what happened in 1860 i didn't really give a damn about what happened on those days yeah but when you start bringing the stories of human bring the human element into history It's very, very intriguing, and I love it. You start learning about the actual personalities of the individuals that for so long have just been a picture on a dollar bill or something. Uh, All of a sudden, they come to life, and you realize they're not. I I had a great conversation yesterday with a friend of mine about Mercy Otis Warren. Are Mm -hmm. you familiar with her? Yeah. Okay, well, Mercy Otis Warren uh, wrote as an anti-federalist and her writing is so eloquent it is unreal but uh no one everyone thought it was elbridge gary when she was writing as an anti-federalist <laughs> and after john adams uh, she uh her husband and uh her and john adams and abigail were close friends in massachusetts but she was very upset with uh, adams and his alien and sedition act and after he left office they exchanged letters and mercy otis warren ate his lunch i mean Adams mm-hmm. kept trying to come back. I had a right to do this, and she would just rip him apart. And to read that exchange of letters is quite, quite entertaining. Yeah, I have heard. I haven't had a chance to dig into any of her writings, but I've heard that she was quite uh, prolific and uh, was a real fireball in the founding of our country. That she gets very, very little recognition. You know, like I said, most people don't have a clue who Mercy Otis Warren is. I just know of her. Uh, from another constitutional scholar who uh, happens to be female and talks about her quite a bit. <laughs> uh, you may know who that is, but um, yeah, yeah um, it's, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, many people don't realize is we don't, didn't just have founding fathers, but we had founding sort of mothers or sisters or whatever you want to call them. But there were a lot of uh, very good women who uh, were behind the men in many cases and alongside of them and others that uh, really stood out in history that, unfortunately, I never learned about her. Yeah, Yeah, Jim, that other constitutional scholar fails to bring out something important about Mercy Otis Warren, and that is the fact she totally opposed the Constitution. Uh, The lady you're talking about Mm -hmm. uh, misrepresents the fact that she actually stood for the Constitution when she did not. That's kind of one of the things I was wondering about, because I know I've heard her talking about it, and it always seems like... Uh, she was instrumental in leading to the Constitution. <laughs> and, 
You know. uh, if you if you read her writing, she totally opposed the Constitution. She said it was a government of the wealthy aristocracy, and it would always lead to despotism. Mm-hmm. Yep, another one like Patrick Henry that smelled a rat. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many of them, Jim. That is mm-hmm. the part that is so amazing is how many anti-federalists they were. And the crazy thing about the anti-federalists, I don't mean loony crazy, just uh, unusual, is the mm-hmm. fact that the anti-federalists came from all social strata, whereas the federalists only came from the wealthy aristocracy. There was a uh, wealthy aristocracy that was anti-federalist. There were uh, medium, what we would call middle class today, who were anti-federalist, and there was the common laborer uh, that was anti-federalist. And some of the anti-federalist uh, writings are grammatically terrible uh, because those people didn't have so uh, good of an education. But right. the anti-federalist represented the people of America uh, at all social levels much better than the federalists ever attempted to do. Yeah, and the anti-federalists have been all but, all but forgotten. You know, when you uh, well, it, it was ahead. intentional, Jim. The anti-federalists were left out of any academic writings for over a hundred years, and then the only reason they were brought back to eminence is by a uh, Cecilia Kenyon who wrote a book of, of, well, actually a paper. It started out as a paper where she was lauding the federalist. And she mentioned the uh, anti-federalist of, of ye men of little faith. And suddenly, after 100 years, uh, historians started saying, anti-federalists, what are you talking about? Who were they? So in, 19, in the 1950s, when she wrote about the oh, ye, men, ye men of little faith, she opened the door to the anti-federalists again. And I thank her for uh, condemning them with her writing, because without that, uh, most people go anti-federalists. Who was she talking about? So people started researching it, and a lot of this came out again. Yeah. I get a kick out of all the times when uh, you get these uh, different talk shows on TV, and they'll bring on this dude from the Federalist Society, and they'll say, you know, why don't you guys get on the Anti-Federalist kick? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah that, uh, that, that was uh, really good uh, that uh, people, you know, I don't understand it because the Anti-Federalists were – you know, they had such brilliance, brilliance in their writings. There was a guy who only wrote one letter that I can find, and he wrote under the name Montezuma. Hmm. And he used sarcasm. I mean, it, it was it's so great to read his letter because everything is sarcastic in what he has to say. And it, it was just a part of the writing, part of the period that is just totally and completely forgotten. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to dig that one out and look at it. I've oh, got the like anti-federalist it, papers, but I haven't had it. it, it it's, it's hilarious. Hmm. Montezuma. I'll have to remember that one. <laughs> and oh, and then there were two men. Uh, I was trying to think of the two men from uh, Pennsylvania who wrote uh, as anti-federalists uh, with a wonderful Christian uh, opposition to the Constitution, and people don't see that anywhere. Hmm. And, uh, you know, people would wonder, uh, you know, okay, well, where was where was the Christian faith in the Federalist or the Anti-Federalist? Well, uh, 
there's one thing for sure. These two gentlemen, one of them was named Malachi, and the other one was named Samuel. Those were their first names. Hmm. And I'm trying to remember exactly what they were. But uh, those two gentlemen just absolutely ripped the Constitution apart, especially from a Christian perspective, and especially the fact that the Constitution included slavery. They went after that with tooth and nail. I mean, they ripped the Constitution forever, said, how could anything ever have a profitable ending when we put uh, one person in one uh, race of people enslavement to another? Wow. That's a trip. Well, thank goodness we finally got rid of it, sort of. Well, we actually just converted everybody so that we're all slaves now. <sighs> but, yeah, well, we're all financial slaves, that's for sure. Yeah, equal slavery under the law. <laughs> well, Doug is called we are in. All, so... <laughs> all slaves on that great federal plantation. Right. So I th I, Doug's called in, so I thought I'd give him a chance to chime in. What's up, Doug? Hey, gentlemen. Hey, uh, so this is just the mic. Uh, and after hearing you, I mean, it's always uh, almost a spiritual experience listening to you speak about the history. Uh, I have a book here in front of me that I read. It's, it's almost 500 pages. Um, it's called Undaunted Courage. It's about the Meriwether, Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, the Clark, and the opening of the American West uh, mm -hmm. book. Yeah. And uh, reading through this thing thoroughly, uh, one of the things I came away with, and this isn't really my point. I have a, it is a point um, or a question. But then I, I have another question for you, Mike. Um, is that um, um, what the way this was portrayed in this was that the expedition, the funding of this expedition, uh, which uh, Jefferson funded, was to gain more lands, well, ultimately, the way I took it. And so uh, that's one issue here was, and, and, and I wouldn't, obviously these people, lands um, is, is the ultimate um, property uh, or thing you can own if you can own the land. So I don't hold that against Jefferson if this portrayal is true. But uh, Clark and, uh, and Lewis were sent out there, funded by Jefferson, to do this. And the other question I have is more personal. Uh, uh, Myself and um, uh, another, uh, my daughter specifically, we've been tracking genealogy. And uh, I was told when I was a young boy that our, uh, my ancestors came over on, you know, some of the first ships. So we assume it could be the Mayflower. I'm, I'm from Massachusetts. So... Uh, 
but uh, in my daughter's further research, uh, she found that we came over on a ship uh, in 1660. And so when she told me that, I thought, well, I've got to talk to this guy, and it's you, Mike, about what was going on in 1660 in Massachusetts uh, and who the people were, what my ancestors might have been doing at that time period. Uh, they were, it wasn't exactly in, um, um, I'm trying to think of the, the, the city there. Um, but anyway, it was close to that area. So that's my question. Uh, I've been to the, the Mayflower landing there, uh, but uh, do you have any uh, addition to, in 1660, some 40 years later, what was going on there in that area, whether it was commerce or the, the continued pilgrims that were coming in? Uh, I do not maintain a lot of uh, of information on those roles uh, that is possibly possibly uh, Doug one of the uh, one of the holes in my knowledge of history is a, a lot about who landed where and when I apologize for not being able to be more informative for you no, I mean, yeah, I'll never hold that against you. I mean, you you got to focus on time periods. You know, one year, how much can go on? But anyway, so that was my question. I thank you for entertaining that. And uh, go what on was with your question. This. Did you have a question about Lewis and Clark? Well, no. Well, the the um, from the, the what I got from this book, which was. Um, from my perspective, was a negative connotation initially that uh, Jefferson was like um, every other wealthy guy who funded this expedition. So all the properties that, you know, it's kind of like you, you find this property, you put your market down and you own the property now so that that was what Jefferson was really about. And it may be true, it may not be true, but I think a lot of these, uh, Washington and Jefferson, were accumulating property through this process. Well, one of the things uh, to totally understand, and uh, Doug, uh, thanks for that question and your comments. Uh, one of the things I have found about history is that uh, there are so many pieces, and I've described trying to understand history as putting together a 5,000-piece uh, jigsaw puzzle because you don't have the complete picture if you don't have this piece of the puzzle. The Mississippi River, and New Orleans especially, was, had caused a great deal of problems for uh, early America, for the original 13 states. It caused a great deal of problems because the New England people did not want the people in the South to be able to use the Mississippi River. So John Jay had uh, attempted to make a treaty with uh, Gardaki of the uh, Spanish embassy to make a treaty that would disallow any use of the Mississippi River for 30 years. 
So that became such a point of contention that even North Carolina, prior to the Constitution being ratified, North Carolina uh, sought out a possible secession from the United States to join Spain. So the Mississippi River was a huge problem and a huge question. And so when uh, Jefferson became president, he talked to his secretary of state, which was James Madison, and he said, we have to make some kind of uh, conciliation about New Orleans. We have to do something about that port because that is the controls the mouth of the Mississippi River, and it is so important to our commerce. So we need to do something about it. So it, it just happens to coincide with the time that Napoleon Bonaparte had fought a war with England and he was in desperate need of money. So uh, James Madison contacts Napoleon and he says, would you sell us, would you sell the United States? Would you sell us New Orleans? And so uh, Napoleon in essence said, hey, look, I'll sell you New Orleans and everything west of the Mississippi River for, uh, I think it was $17 million. And uh, so uh, Madison comes back to Jefferson and tells Jefferson about this. And Jefferson says, Madison says, let's buy it. And Jefferson says, I'm not sure it's constitutional. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I have the authority to do that. And so Madison then goes to members of the Supreme Court and goes to members of Congress and he tells Jefferson, oh, everybody says it's constitutional. <laughs> Jefferson, still, Jefferson still had his doubts about it, but Jefferson was so concerned with the commerce of the Mississippi River that he agreed to the purchase of uh, the— Is that the Louisiana Purchase? Yeah, that's where we came yeah. up with the Louisiana Purchase. So uh, then uh, so, uh, Madison asked— uh, Uh, Bonaparte uh, said, well, what is out there west of the Mississippi River? And Napoleon says, I don't have a clue. Yeah, he didn't know. Well, let me ask you this question. What were the reservations that um, Jefferson had as to lawfulness? He he just said he had looked at the Constitution. He says, there's nothing in the Constitution I can find that gives me the authority as president of the United States to buy that. Uh So extrapolate, because you know how these uh, the government kind of funds this and that and corporations and can. Right. What was his uh, underlying um, uh, objection? Well, uh, here's the thing I think that's critical to know. Jefferson wanted to acquire these lands for a rather noble purpose. Jefferson said, and it's in some of his letters to Madison at the time, he said, if we can get all of this land and as a country, we can sell this land to our own people who are moving west. If we can sell parcels of this, we can create a revenue which will take away taxation. So we won't have to tax we won't have to tax our own people if we can create revenue from this land. So, um, according to this uh, book that I was alluding to here, uh, since Jefferson funded this, he was actually, once the claim was put on the land, he was going to own it. So, was if that is true, 
then was he going to uh, sell it as a simple fee type of uh, situation to um, build up uh, the ownership by the common people? Well, the, the uh, mission of Lewis and Clark was not funded by Jefferson as an individual. They were funded by President Jefferson, and it was using uh, uh, funds that were in the United States, uh, that were United States funds, and there was no individuality in that uh, expedition whatsoever. And to be totally honest, back then, if you read the letters and what uh, transpired back and forth, no one expected Lewis and Clark to ever come back. Yeah, I know that. Well, uh, the, the reading of the the forging of the rivers and, and all that, uh, uh, that's demonstrable uh, that this was a tremendous uh, risk to life and limb for Lewis and Clark to do this. But I thank you because... Uh, you know how things are slanted, and and I could have misconstrued the meaning of the writings in this book, but it it seemed to pretend to uh, putting some type of uh, negativity to the uh, investment. Uh, in other words, they were saying he had a personal investment. Uh, Jefferson did in um, funding the Lewis and Clark expedition. Well, that that is not true, Doug. And uh, one of the things I think, if people will study uh, Jefferson's Secretary of Treasury, that you know that uh, moved in under the Jefferson administration, and it was Albert Gallatin. And Albert Gallatin is someone, you know, there's Gallatin, Tennessee. Most people have never heard of Albert Gallatin, but he was the longest sitting Secretary of Treasury in U.S. history. And Gallatin, if you read his policies, were absolutely fantastic and were the direct opposite uh, antithesis of Alexander Hamilton because Albert Gallatin fought to do everything within his power to lessen the burden of taxation on the American citizen. And he, so the, he did that he did that under Jefferson and under uh, Madison. You know, you're, I, I have to say, uh, I love your knowledge of this stuff. And so here we go. So who replaced this secretary? Well, I know that Gallatin had a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. My memory is not clear on the end of his uh, uh, tenure as uh, Secretary of Treasury, but I, I believe that he served under James Monroe's presidency as well, and everybody really liked him. And uh, it's a, a piece of irony, Doug, is the fact that Alexander Hamilton wanted to hang Albert Gallatin <laughs> wanted to hang him because Albert uh, Gallatin was uh, very much involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. And uh, that was one of the things that uh, Hamilton wanted to do was he wanted Albert Gallatin to be uh, hanged uh, for his part in the uh, Whiskey Rebellion. But uh, Gallatin at that point was fighting against taxation on the common man because he said it inhibits 
it keeps the common man from making a, a living for himself and his family. And he wanted the taxation burden lightened as much as possible. And when Hamilton came in with the uh, uh, whiskey tax on the farmers of western Pennsylvania, it was just uh, it was too much. And uh, Gallatin fought against it. Gallatin was one of the leaders of the Whiskey Rebellion, and Hamilton just hated him. And uh, as I said again, not to be redundant, but Hamilton wanted him to be hanged, but Washington would not go along with it. You know what I like about this guy, Galveston, is this is the the true essence of taxation, uh, you know, the, those that fought against it. And from my point of view, of course, uh, this was part of the big plan to uh, encumber uh everybody with a whatever you do you know it, 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 taxation has uh, as a parasite has uh, gotten into every activity pretty much except for thought maybe but uh, but but even that you know use the computer to, Share your thoughts, and I'm sure there's some thing that you're paying for in that. So, so I like that uh, the the attitude of this guy. Was it Galveston, like the song Galveston? No, Gallatin, G A L L A T I N. Well, wasn't he from Pennsylvania? Uh, I'm sorry, Jim. Wasn't he from Pennsylvania? Yes. That's he was what in I Pennsylvania. Thought. He became a senator, and there was a big argument, Jim, about him when he first won the Senate seat because uh, there was a lot of protests from uh, uh, James Wilson and other Federalists that he couldn't have the seat in the Senate because he was not a natural-born citizen. Well, isn't that special, even though the Constitution doesn't call for it for the Senate? <laughs> it should, I think. Well, that's well, they actually uh, they actually unseated him after he was elected. The uh, uh, the senators voted against him being seated. That's how bad the Federalists hated him, and they voted against him being seated. But uh, he uh, stepped down, uh, did not take his seat. But then he later won election won election to the same seat. The people hmm. in Pennsylvania loved him. Out of, out of curiosity, have you seen anything in your studies as to why they didn't require natural-born citizenship standards for the other, uh, at least federal, uh, offices like House and Senate? Well, there was one of the things that created that, Jim, and most people don't know this, but in 1787, prior to, uh, well, eight, late 86, early 1787, the United States offered... Uh, uh, the presidency to a foreign uh, prince. Hmm. I think I had heard and something about that, that at became, one point. That became a huge. Uh, uh, the uh, president of the uh, the president of the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, uh, working hand in hand with uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, actually offered the presidency of the United States to a foreign prince. Slap that sucker upside the head. <laughs> and and he refused it. Thank goodness. 
And so that uh, so that was part of what led to the discussion at the convention because several of the delegates, including Luther Martin and others, had heard about this, that they were going to bring in a foreign prince and make him president. And it bothered them so much that they wanted that included in the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, that the president be a natural-born citizen or a citizen at the time of the drafting of the Constitution. Right. I kind of wish they so would have applied was, it to That was Senate a preemptory move. Say that again? Uh, that was a preemptory move. Oh, okay. Yeah, it makes sense given that situation. I wish there had been a global move where they'd made it the same for everybody. But they'd yeah, still ignore that, it just like they do now. There wasn't much of it. You know, I think uh, had someone said, well, we'll bring in a foreign prince and put him in the Senate or the House of Representatives, they might have added that. But I think mm -hmm. that that was a reactionary measure because of the uh, offering of the presidency of the yeah. United States to that prince. Yeah, the other thing is when you're talking right about now. a whole body, um, there's not as much damage they could do. But if you're the head gyrastacutus, you know, the number one, you know, where there's only one in that branch, it's a whole different story. I can see where that would probably be part of one of the things they were thinking about, uh, one vote right. versus the only vote. Um, but just the same. Well, Jim, uh, I sent you those. I think you acknowledged receipt of those two anti-federalists. The yeah. first one, Consider Arms by Malachi Maynard and Samuel Field, are the uh, two that wrote from the Christian perspective. Okay, cool. I appreciate that. And the I'll last take a look one, at those. The last one is the sarcastic yeah. Montezuma. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I love that sarcasm. That You'll enjoy that one. Definitely. Hey. Definitely. Okay, so this is kind of uh, out of the box thing here, but when you mention that name, Gallatin, that right. trig that triggered something in me. There was. Um, I don't know if it was the 50s, I'm thinking maybe the 60s Hollywood movie. Uh, it was called Have Gun, Will Travel. And this guy used to use, uh, and I think the song that they played was Gallatin, Gallatin. And, and I think this Paladin, P A L L A D I N. That's from Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, but he uh, used a he had a pawn, uh, a Masonic pawn symbol that he carried with him all the time. Right, it was on his business card. Have gun, will travel. Uh, well, you know, Gallatin, uh, Paladin. Uh, these guys change a letter, and it's. We're not supposed to catch on. Anyway, I don't know if that means anything, if it has any connection or not, but the guy was a uh, an assassin, okay? A, a, a high-paid assassin to go out and catch people and kill them or whatever. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry to introduce that there. I don't know if it makes any connections here or not, but... That's it for me. <laughs> have you uh, 
Mike, have you seen the uh, deal where this dingbat Democratic uh, rep wants to um, uh, move to expel the GOP members from Congress? No, Jim. I tell you what, for my own mental health, I try to avoid TV. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen it on TV, but so far I've seen a whole bunch of posts and different articles about it. I just got another one that came in here a second ago. Um said, uh, where is it? I can't remember her name. I keep forgetting it. She's a heavy set black woman. Um, where is it? But I can't find her name. But it says, uh, I believe Republican members of Congress who have incited this domestic terror attack through their attempts to overturn the election must face consequences. They have broken their sacred oath of office. And, uh, oh, Cori Bush is her name. And the thing is, is she says, uh, uh, I will be introducing a resolution calling for their expulsion. And they've got a they've got a screenshot here of the actual resolution. It's the discussion draft, and it's dated January 5th, the day before all this stuff happened. You don't think this was pre-planned? Well, Jim, I, uh, <laughs> our good friend Robert and I had about an hour phone conversation on that this morning. Yeah, he's uh, the here whole now. darn thing was a psyop. Oh, yeah. And Robert, I think yeah, I saw I tried to merge you in. Are you there? Robert? Well, that's interesting. I could have swore it showed that he came in. Let me try and add him in here. Um, if I can get back to the call. I got all this this goofy Skype thing trying to figure out how to get back from where I was. Uh, let's see here. Miss call. That's not what I want. <laughs> Uh, there we go. Go to call. Now I can try and add Robert in. <laughs> We've got a few minutes left. I'd love to hear, hear what he has to say. There we are. Um, man, where'd he go? You would think that when someone calls in, their name would be at the top of the list when you go to try and check your thing so you can find them easy. But they have no. got to scroll down and find them. Uh, hopefully he'll be coming in here. Looks yeah. like it's ringing. Uh, there we go. Robert, you there? I think I got you. A little background noise, but what's up, man? Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Give me, give me, give me fifteen seconds. Getting through the drive-through, are you? (laughs) Uh, Get a Big Mac for me. No, just kidding. Um, Yeah, I'm glad that we got you on here in the last few minutes of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry about the noise. Give me fifteen seconds again. Okay, now. Okay, go ahead. yeah, uh, Harry Gaddy might have already addressed this. He did. I apologize. Going back to Mary, Meriwether Lewis and Michael Clark, or whatever that jerk's name was, uh, I have heard that the real reason they were out there was to slow down or maybe even stop uh, Indian tribe expansion because the Columbia River is an excellent source of water and fish and game and so forth. It, it, it's pretty sweet out there. It, you know anything about that, uh, Professor Gaddy? Uh, well, you know, that was rumored, uh, by quite a few people in that time era. And, uh, there had, there had been so many problems just in, uh, you know, because Washington had purchased a lot of land and so did Albert Gallatin. As a matter of fact, they purchased a lot of land in what is now Southern Ohio and out to the Mississippi river. 
and they had purchased a lot of land for speculation, and then they ran into some huge problems, and those problems were called Indians. Uh, yeah. Because they couldn't sell the land because the people who had tried to purchase their land on speculation had moved out there and then been massacred by the Indians. So uh, it uh, was not a really good uh, selling feature for their property. For obvious reasons. Yeah, really move into your new land and get scalped. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, get upset. You know, we don't think about this, but uh, we were taking property that didn't belong to us. And, you know, some people get upset when you do that. Yeah, especially, you know, the typical thing where uh, Bonaparte sells us land that he doesn't own. And, well, we bought it, so it's ours. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so, white pale face. <laughs> yeah, they did it anyway. Well, well, you know, that is another thing that we don't look at when it comes to history, guys, is how that uh, the Union Army that had uh, committed so many atrocities against Southerners during the war, how that Union Army was then turned on the Indians of the Western Plains and uh, uh, southern part of the, uh, you know, like Arizona and New Mexico in that area, how we turned yep. those uh, forces on the Indians and wiped out and attempted to wipe a lot of them out. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. And they wiped out as many as they could. Another no dark doubt. day in our history. Yeah, and we had uh, we had just fought a war to free one race of people allegedly, so we decided to eliminate another one, which wasn't alleged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's like the Santee Sioux in Minnesota. Santee Sioux, the Navajo, uh, all you know, the Santee Sioux and the Navajo were both uh, uh, done terrible harm under the Lincoln administration while the Civil War was still raging. Yeah, Sand Creek, uh, Colorado. Yeah, that would be one of them. And, uh, yeah. you know, especially the long walk of the Navajo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the Union the union forces uh, led by Kit Carson went on to the Navajo Reservation, cut down all of their fruit trees, uh, killed all of their sheep, killed their horses and cows, and then force marched them to Bosco Redondo in southern New Mexico, which was nothing but a desert and force marched them with a lot of the elderly and the young dying on the, on the, uh, force march. Man. Wow. And you have the trail of tears with the Cherokee. Yeah. I remember a good friend of mine on the Navajo reservation when my wife was a principal there and we got, I got to be really good friends with the Yazi family. And one of them, uh, had a mustache in which uh, facial hair on Indians is rare. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, asked, uh, I asked him, I said, uh, can you uh, determine how you ended up with facial hair? And he said, well, obviously, he said uh, there was some uh, uh, sexual misconduct uh, with our people when they were at Bosco Redondo by the guards. Ooh. Well, I hate to say it, but we are out of time, and uh, I didn't get Mike's That's websites right in. Uh, Mike's websites are linked on my links page on my site, so you can go there to find his information. And uh, Mike... Robert, uh, Doug, thanks for being here. Take care of your bodies because the only place you have to live. We will be back Monday live tomorrow's replay. Take care and God bless. Thanks, guys.